Welcome to Her Half of History. My name is Lori. The current series is Women in Espionage, and this is episode 8.8, Mata Hari, a World War I spy. Despite her exotic-sounding name, the woman who would one day be known as Mata Hari was 100% Dutch. She was born in 1876 and named Margarita Zella. And the first of many problems to deal with in her story is the name. Throughout her life, she changed names like some women do hair colors. Many biographers try to keep up with the changes so that her name changes with every chapter in the book. Me, I'm just going to throw my hands up in despair and call her Margarita until she becomes Matahari. Then I'll call her Matahari, but at least it's only one change for you to keep up with. The second problem to deal with is that Margarita's life was a staged performance from beginning to end, and she frequently changed the script. She was a liar, and many of her statements about herself are both demonstrably untrue and also contradictory. It makes it a rough go for a historian, trying to sort out the truth from the lies, but we'll give it a go. Margarita's father had a thriving haberdashery business. Her mother was a young lady with social status, so that's a boost in life, right? Margarita was taught manners, music, handwriting, and French. In short, all the skills necessary to marry well, host parties, and be decorative, while servants did all the heavy work. Unfortunately, her father went bankrupt, her parents divorced, and her mother died with no cause given other than humiliation and poverty, which smacks of suicide to me, though I have no proof of that. Margarita was packed off to live with relatives, presumably because her father's mistress didn't want her. The relatives packed her off to boarding school, where she'd learned to be a kindergarten teacher, so the relatives don't really seem to have wanted her either. The school soon rejected her too. There are no verified records on why, but the rumor is that she, age 16, had an affair with the headmaster, age 51. In modern times, that's called abuse of a minor, and he would have been the one at fault. But those were different days, so she was the one at fault, and off she went. At any rate, she was never going to be a kindergarten teacher. The honest truth was that a woman with social pretensions wasn't supposed to have a job. She was supposed to have a man, preferably a husband, but at least a father with money enough so that she didn't need a job. Accordingly, Margarita set about finding herself a man. They didn't have online dating then, but they did have newspapers, and one of them carried this ad. Officer on home leave from Dutch East Indies would like to meet a girl of pleasant character. Object? Matrimony. Margarita answered the ad and included a picture. Her object was also matrimony. She wanted a man to support her as soon as possible. Rudolf MacLeod wanted a Dutch wife to take back to the Indies. It was obviously a match made in heaven, right? She was already signing letters as your future little wife before they'd even met. They were officially engaged six days after meeting. A few months later, they were married, and that includes a delay because Rudolf MacLeod was home on medical leave. He was ill. With precisely what, we are not absolutely sure, but syphilis is a good guess. They went on a beautiful honeymoon and then came home where the marriage proceeded to break down. They lived with Rudolf's sister, which did not help, but the problems were much deeper than that. Rudolf was a man who had lived hard, drinking, gambling, and womanizing, with entirely predictable results on his health 
his finances, and his expectations. He was not an ideal husband. But even so, we cannot place all the blame on him. Margarita herself said, I had not married to go without luxury, which is to say financial problems. And she also said that seeing a handsome young man made my heart start to beat quicker, which is to say jealousy and fidelity problems. Rudolph, by the way, was quite a bit older. Nevertheless, their son was born in January 1879, and in May they left for the Dutch East Indies. The medical leave was over. In some ways, this was an improvement. In Java, they could afford servants and the luxury Margarita expected a man to provide her. That was, after all, the reason she had married him. Plus, no more sister-in-law. But in other ways, it was worse. Java was a society with very strong racial divisions. As someone 100% Dutch, Margarita should have been on the top of the pile. But her hair was dark, and her complexion was the type that Northern Europeans also called dark, though in our more globalized world we wouldn't call it dark at all. The point was, many in Java assumed she was mixed race. It was a social embarrassment for both Margarita and Rudolf. Sad that that is how the world worked, but that is, in fact, how the world worked. Nevertheless, their daughter was born in 1898. The marriage had not improved. They wrote to each other during brief absences, and Rudolf frequently wrote things like, A puerile letter such as that you sent me yesterday does me no good at all, and if you don't know how to write better, you might as well abstain from writing. He also accused her of neglecting the children. Whether she did or not is hard to prove, but certainly Java had terrible child mortality rates. Their oldest son did die. Rudolf blamed Margarita for neglect. She blamed him for giving their son congenital syphilis. The rumor mill blamed poisoning by the native nurse, but that accusation was not prosecuted, as it certainly would have been if there had been even a single shred of proof. It might easily have been something as simple as food poisoning. The fact is, it was simply a tragedy, all the way around, for everyone. Margarita now reported physical abuse and wrote to her father, who advised her to get a divorce. There is, of course, no excuse for physical abuse, and I don't doubt for a moment that abuse did occur, but remember that Margarita was a lifelong liar, so she may have exaggerated the situation. It's particularly obvious in one letter where she seems far more upset when he said she bored him than she was when he threatened her with a loaded revolver. Also bear in mind that she herself wrote that she provoked him on purpose. All in all, there was plenty of blame to go around. By 1902, Rudolf had retired. They were back in Amsterdam, and the divorce papers were filed. After an inevitable legal wrangle, Rudolf got custody of their daughter. Margarita would never see her again. And she was back right where she had started, poor and on her own. Actually below where she had started, for now she had a divorce, scandalous, and syphilis, unless she was lying about that, always so hard to tell. She decided to go to Paris, where a circus hired her as a horsewoman, but she was told she'd do better as a dancer. So she created a stage persona. She was Lady Gresha MacLeod, widow of a Scottish officer who had served in the Indies. That's four lies in one sentence, if you're counting. She had studied the sacred temple dances there, and that was the secret to success. 
because that meant this was religion. This was art with a capital A. It was certainly not just stripping. Oh no, you are revealing your own prudish small-mindedness to suggest that it was just stripping. She didn't dance at any trashy clubs. She danced at museums for the intelligentsia and classy society parties. People came in droves to see art. As business grew, she decided that Lady Gresham MacLeod wasn't exotic enough, so she became Matahari, which in Malay meant sunrise or eye of the dawn. With every interview, the story grew. She was the daughter of a temple dancer in India. She had been raised in a temple until a Scottish lord rescued her before he tragically died. She learned to dance in India. She learned to dance in Java. She was half Indian. She was full-blooded Indian. It wasn't even a consistent stage persona. Her birthplace and race changed according to her mood. Matahari was such a sensation among those with pretensions as art lovers that any criticism came across as mean-spirited and catty. Like when the French novelist Colette said, she did not actually dance, but with graceful movements shed her clothes. And you might think it was just cattiness, except that Matahari herself had the same cynical view. I never could dance well, she wrote to a friend. People came to see me because I was the first who dared to show myself naked to the public. Whatever the reason, the public was certainly coming, and the critics were going into raptures about how deeply moving it all was. The money flowed in, too. But even so, she was soon living beyond her means, and soon everyone who was anyone in Paris had seen her perform at least once, so it was time to take this show on the road and tour Europe. This brought several benefits, new audiences, and also more rich men. At this point in time, any woman on the stage was considered to have questionable morals. But there was no question about Matahari's. She left a trail of lovers wherever she went, many of them prepared to donate large sums of money in return for a private performance of art. Alongside all the broken-hearted wives in her wake, Matahari also left many a young woman who thought they could shed their clothes as gracefully as anyone. Matahari responded to these upstart imitators with a breathtaking lack of both humility and honesty. Born in Java, in the midst of tropical vegetation, I have been taught from my earliest childhood the deep meaning of these dances, which constitute a cult, a religion. Only those born and bred there become impregnated with their religious significance, and can impart to them that solemn note to which they can lay claim. There is no telling how long Matahari might have been able to sustain a life that depended on being beautiful and pretending to be young. Honestly, she lasted a surprisingly long time in a field not known for long careers. She was still going strong in 1914 and was staying in Berlin with a six-month contract and her lover, a chief of police, when World War I changed everything. Matahari was legally a French resident and France was the enemy. So Germany froze her bank accounts and confiscated her luggage when she tried to leave. They also claimed that as a Dutch citizen... She needed a Dutch passport, so she had to wait for that. When it came, she crossed out the age 38 on it and replaced it with age 30. By this point, she had no money for a new train ticket, so she went for the old standby. Find a man to pay. She charmed, but did not seduce a Dutch businessman into doing exactly that. 
We know she did not seduce him because on arrival in Amsterdam she met his wife, who felt bold enough to ask the infamous courtesan why she hadn't seduced the man. And in another truly breathtaking comment, Maltahari said, Because I had only one chemise left, as everything else had been taken away from me, and really I didn't feel clean enough. In Amsterdam, she found a man who would furnish a house for her, and she was there in the autumn of 1915 when a pivotal event occurred, though she failed to realize the significance at the time. She was visited by Karl Kramer, the German consul. He asked her to become a German agent, complete with a code name, invisible ink, and all the works. Matahari had no very kind feelings toward the Germans at this point. They had frozen her accounts and stolen her valuable wardrobe. They owed her. So she took the 20,000 francs Kramer offered as her just recompense, showed him the door, and then trashed the invisible ink. As far as she was concerned, the matter was closed. Any Germans waiting for intelligence from her would wait for a long time. She got bored in Amsterdam and went back to Paris. En route, the boat stopped in British territory, and they grilled her on her identity and searched her possessions. They found nothing incriminating, but they didn't like her, nonetheless. She was a woman alone, multilingual, bold, and quite ready to admit to being both unmarried and sexually active. As biographer Pat Shipman wrote, this was wartime, and women were expected to be dutiful, brave, home-loving, and patriotic. Nothing about Matahari ever convinced anyone she had those traits. This, too, was a fact that would come back to haunt her. But for the moment, the British had nothing to go on but their own disapproval, so Matahari was allowed to carry on to Paris, where she was kept under constant surveillance by French intelligence. From this point on, we have extremely good evidence about everything she did because her every move was recorded and filed away and is now available online in an unclassified dossier that is all of 1,275 pages long. And what she did was a lot of shopping and entertaining an incredible number of men. The solid, respectable men tailing her were appalled, but they found no evidence of any spying activity. According to Matahari herself, she visited the office of Captain Georges Ladoux because she wanted to visit a health spa, which was in the war zone, so a pass was needed. He tried to recruit her as a French spy. According to Ladoux, she offered to be a French spy while he already suspected her of being a German one. According to Matahari, Ladoux assigned her to go to Belgium and seduce a banker there with German contacts who had information she could pass on. If she could get the info he wanted, Ladoux would give her one million francs. According to Ladoux, he only said the information would be worth one million francs, not that he'd pay it, and it was all intended as a trap to catch this wicked woman in her traitorous activities. Either way, off she went to Belgium. Once again, the boat stopped in British territory. Once again, the Brits interrogated her. This time, they mistook her for a genuine German agent, and once they'd sorted out that mistaken identity, they said, all right, you can go, but not to Belgium, and they packed her on a boat to Spain. Matahari was, understandably, annoyed. She wanted that one million francs. She always wanted money, but this time, she had a lover she actually wanted to marry a Russian soldier who was still in his early 20s, if you like, and she needed money to do it because he certainly didn't have any. 
So she looked around her in Spain for a man to provide, and as usual, she found one. Spain had plenty of German officers, so she seduced one who was happy to tell her about German submarines off Morocco and the name of the head of German intelligence in Barcelona. She wrote this up in ordinary ink, uncoded, and mailed it to Ladue through the ordinary post office. The following day, she met a man named Don Vigne, who worked for the French embassy, which obviously meant he was someone to trust, right? With an utterly disarming naivete, Matahari told him all about it, him being with the French embassy and all. Since Ladue did not answer her letter, she gave all subsequent information directly to Don Vigne. The information included that the Germans had broken the French code for their radio messages, that their agents carried invisible ink in little white balls under their fingernails, etc. Most of this information was what the French intel community called intoxication, false or stale information planted to see how much would make it back to headquarters, which in this case was all of it. Matahari was too inexperienced an agent to realize that she was not deceiving her German lover. He was the one deceiving her. Since she had obviously delivered as a spy, Matahari tripped along to Paris to collect her one million francs, but Ledoux avoided her. He was simply never in the office when she tried to drop by. And on February 13th, 1917, he had her arrested. The man who managed the investigation was Pierre Bouchardon, nicknamed the Grand Inquisitor. He later wrote, From the first interview with Matahari, I had the intuition that I was in the presence of a person in the pay of our enemies. From that time, I had but one thought, to unmask her. And having made up his mind on the basis of a hunch before he'd even begun the investigation, Bouchardon cast around for the evidence to back up what he already believed. Matahari found all this ridiculous. Everything she had done, she had done on Ladoux's orders. It would all be sorted out soon, and she didn't need a lawyer. That last part was a very big mistake. When she finally realized the gravity of her situation, she asked for her own personal lawyer, who did try for her, but he was certainly no expert in espionage cases. That wasn't his expertise. Meanwhile, Bouchardon kept her in terrible conditions, believing that such a circumstance softened up the prisoners. Saint-Lazare was the very worst prison Paris had to offer. It had dirt, dark and damp, fleas and rats, bad food and bad hygiene. Matahari, accustomed to the very best that rich men could provide, began to lose her mind. The days stretched into weeks and then months. Her letters grew increasingly wild and desperate. To a modern reader, she is clearly suffering bad anxiety on the level that would be considered a serious mental health issue. But back then, it was just a woman making a fuss over nothing. She was so free with the names of her lovers, past and present, so utterly unabashed about sexuality that the men interrogating her thought she must be capable of all kinds of iniquity. Bouchardon was certainly industrious in his attempt to find the evidence he wanted. He sent inquiries to banks all over Europe, looking for accounts in Matahari's name with suspiciously large amounts of money. He found none. He scrutinized all those police reports from the men who had tailed her. They were eye-popping in multiple ways, but none of it was criminal. None of it was traitorous. 
He seized her possessions and analyzed every soap, cream, makeup, and perfume bottle in her possession to find one that was really invisible ink. The chemist found nothing out of the ordinary, but admitted that some could be used that way. The same is true of milk and lemon juice. Her possessions contained letters or cards from 53, yes, 53 separate men, and Bouchardon questioned all of them. To a man, they all agreed that Matahari was charming, lovely, and had never asked them for any military information. All this was in her favor, but she expected Ladoux to vouch for her, and he did not. She expected Danvigne to vouch for her, and he did not. These men betrayed her because they thought a woman like her must be a spy. She fit their profile of what a female spy would be like, and they disapproved. Also, France needed a scapegoat. The war was going very badly. Hundreds of thousands of their young men were dead. The countryside was in ruins. The suffering was intense. Someone must be to blame. In April... Ladoux produced German telegrams his office had intercepted. That is to say, he produced copies of the telegrams. These telegrams were from a German officer in Spain to Berlin headquarters. They referred to Agent H-21 and explained that said agent had pretended to accept a French espionage assignment, attempted it, was sent back to Spain, and was paid for the work on a couple of occasions, complete reports to follow. Matahari's name was never mentioned, but Anna Lentian's was mentioned, and that just so happened to be the name of Matahari's maid. Bouchardon must have sat back in his chair and smiled. Here was the proof he needed. It's in the subsequent years that anyone bothered to ask questions, like, where are the original coded telegrams? And if Ladoux had these in December, the date the first telegram was sent, why did he wait until February to arrest Matahari, and until April to mention the telegrams to anyone? Why did he pay for extremely expensive surveillance if he already had proof? Why were they coded in an old German code that the French had broken and the Germans knew that the French had broken? The telegrams are also full of other inconsistencies, such as dates that are close but not quite right, and claims that there were maybe 14 telegrams, maybe 9... The list of problems adds up, all of it exhaustively explored in a biography by Russell Warren Howe. There are many theories, all ultimately unprovable, but here are some. Theory number one. Ladoux fabricated the telegrams because he needed a scapegoat to explain to the public why the war was going so badly. Theory number two. Someone, probably Ladoux, fabricated the telegrams because the fabricator was a German agent himself and needed to divert attention away. Theory number three. The telegrams were, in fact, sent by a German agent, not because they had hired Matahari as a German spy, but because the easiest way to eliminate a French spy was to get France itself to do the eliminating. That is to say, it was misinformation. Theory number four. The telegrams were sent by a German agent, and they wanted Matahari executed not because they felt threatened by her, but because she had taken their 20,000 francs and delivered nothing. Again, misinformation. The least likely scenario is that Matahari, having proved herself to be so utterly incompetent as a French spy, 
was somehow so clever as a German spy that an exhaustive investigation had been unable to uncover any other proof. Bouchardon didn't even know about the 20,000 German francs until May 21st when Matahari, ill and confused, broke down and told him about it. She had wisely kept quiet about that earlier, but prison had broken her. She thought it proved her innocence. She had not spied for Germany, even when it was clearly in her financial interest to do so. But for Bouchardon, it was the final nail in her coffin. We must make clear, he wrote, that from our point of view, maintaining contact with the enemy is considered legally to be a crime equivalent to actually furnishing information to the enemy. Which is quite a bizarre statement. She had not been on French soil when Kramer visited her, and surely France could have no objection to bilking Germany out of whatever money anyone could bilk it out of. A later biographer wrote, If she had held up the Deutsche Bank's Amsterdam office at gunpoint, the French would undoubtedly have applauded. But she took it by deceiving Kramer into thinking she would work for him, and that was, apparently, a crime against France. On July 24th, Matahari came to trial. It was hardly a jury of her peers. She faced seven military men, and they found her guilty, even on charges that were demonstrably false from Ladoux's own surveillance reports. On October 15, 1917, Matahari was led before a firing squad and shot. No one stepped forward to claim her body. Back in the Netherlands, Rudolf MacLeod heard the news and is reported to have said, Whatever she's done in life, she did not deserve that. Four days later, Ladoux was arrested as a German spy. It was later said that her execution was a great stroke of justice, for her incredible espionage had cost the lives of 50,000 French soldiers. And that statement was as staged as anything Matahari ever said, because no one has ever tied that number to a specific piece of information that she supposedly passed to Germany, which led to a specific battle at which 50,000 Frenchmen died. It was a number someone made up out of thin air to congratulate the French establishment for a job well done at a time when they were clearly not doing a good job at all. Since her death, Matahari has entered the public imagination as the epitome of the femme fatale, gorgeous and deadly and utterly deceptive. Feminists have cheered her as a self-made woman who lived as she chose, untrammeled by societal norms that oppressed women as a matter of routine. But others have growled that Matahari is hardly a feminist success story. The patriarchy ground her into the dust with a thoroughness that they rarely achieve. Even at the height of her career, Matahari can be seen as more victim than conqueror. Her so-called success was always based on pleasing men. And in the end, men abandoned her, either because their wives insisted on it or they ran out of money, both of which happened on a regular basis. And even if they didn't exactly abandon her, they weren't offering an equal and mutually respectful relationship. None of those 53 men who found her so lovely and charming thought it worth their while to even so much as claim her body. Not even the Russian soldier she had hoped to marry. So which is she? A powerhouse? Or the ultimate victim? I'm wondering why it couldn't be both. She was a powerhouse of a woman who thrived for a very long time in the world she was raised in. It's just a real shame that that was a world which taught girls that the only way to succeed in life 
was to charm a man into providing for her. And that's as tragic as anything else that happened to Matahari. My major source for today was Pat Shipman's biography, Femme Fatale, Love, Lies, and the Unknown Life of Matahari. You can find more sources and a transcript and pictures on the website at herhalfofhistory.com. You can either be relieved or disappointed that I didn't include the most scandalous pictures. Your choice. Please let me know what you think of Matahari on Twitter at her underscore half or on Facebook at her half of history. Reviews are the way that this self-made woman gets publicity. So if you can leave one or share an episode or tell a friend, you help more than you know. Many thanks to those of you who already have. Next week, we move to an entirely different femme fatale on the other side of the world. Zhang Pingru of China. Thanks. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.